The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I do welcome you to this 81st convocation. You probably know that 80 years ago, on September the 25th, 1929, Dr. J.G. Machen gave the first convocation. And now here we sit again, here at Westminster Theological Seminary, having opportunity to study the unchanging Word of God. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9, where we will spend our attention this morning. Let us first pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The silence was welcomed. In fact, it was a disarmingly delightful silence. It had not been so quiet for the two years in the Sofia, Bulgaria neighborhood where we lived. Most nights, the stillness of the darkness was overwhelmed by the agitation of guard dogs, barking and yelping and whining, truly The night air every night was filled with this chorus of canines, antiphonally barking one to another as they shared this wonderful symphony of growls, howls, and yowls. Yet on this particular night, it was quiet. The next night was equally quiet. This quietness, once delightful, now became strange, disconcerting, even a bit eerie. We began to wonder what had happened. The answer came one evening as I was walking into our home, and I saw my neighbor going into his home, and I hurled across the backyard fence a typical Bulgarian greeting, and my neighbor spoke back to me the two words that he knows in English. Hi, David, he said. I met him in the backyard, and we began to talk with my German shepherd down at my feet, and his dogs nowhere to be seen. I was not prepared for what I was about ready to hear, an account that rivaled something like that of a Tom Clancy novel. You see, cars purchased in that part of the world, you know for certain that before you purchase the used car, that it will have been tinkered with. Odometers are always rolled back. The best parts are replaced with parts that are not so great, so the better parts can be sold. And most Bulgarians 
long to get a car from somewhere else, but are not able to. However, my neighbor had saved up money, and he had traveled to Germany to buy the car of his dreams. When he was driving the car home with his wife from Germany, they crossed the border into Bulgaria and filled out the necessary paperwork and then drove to their home. Little did they know that at that border crossing, a network of phone calls began to the local police in the city of Sofia. During the night, the police came to my neighbor's home. And as he's telling me this story, the tears in his eyes began to well. As this hardened gentleman from years of communism relayed to me that with the coming of the police during the night while he slept, they came to his yard, killed his two dogs, and stole his Mercedes S-Class from his yard. The next day, he got a telephone call, an operative from the police department, telling him that if he wanted his car back, he could pay an exorbitant sum to get it. The agency that is designed to serve and protect became an agent of corruption, of collusion, of death, of shameless theft, indeed even blackmail. It is no wonder that many, if not most, Bulgarians live with a deep-seated skepticism, with a deep sense that no one is to be trusted. Hence, the well-worn Bulgarian proverb, Spasi me Bože ot moite priateli, which means, God, save me from my friends. As we come to the text of Romans chapter 9 this morning, there is a far more serious matter than the trust of the government at hand. There's something far more serious going on when we come to Romans chapter 9. It has to do with the very trustworthiness of God himself. The God that is to serve and protect his people seemed to many of the first century Jews to be a God who is abandoning his promises. Let me just remind you, this is a familiar text in Romans 8, but let me just remind you of the great crescendo of praise. A symphony, not of canines, but of, of the, the, the words of Paul as he explodes in doxology about the unfailing love of God for us in Christ. He exalts in the notion that those that God has adopted and united to his son to be conformed into his image are people that have the love of God securely upon them. So much so that Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? And the answer, as Paul expounds at the end of Romans 8, is there is nothing. Why? Because we are united to the Son, and for, the, for God's love to abandon us would mean for that love to abandon his own Son. But you see, this raised major questions 
in the minds of the first century Israelites. What if God does this for the Gentiles? What does that do to the promises of God to the Jews? Indeed, you will likely know, and if you don't yet, you will soon, that in the book of Romans and in the first century, we have a tremendous undercurrent of Jewish and Gentile conflict. But even more foundational, when we come to the book of Romans, we have Paul exposing the reality that it is not merely an interpersonal or interracial conflict, but it is at the very core an understanding of who God is and what he is doing. And the question that is in the minds of the Jews is, does the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ not somehow invalidate the promises that God has made to Israel? There is a perceived dilemma here in their minds of the faithfulness of God over against the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Anders Nygren in his classic commentary has put it, would it not be the most striking refutation of Paul's preaching if its content were that in the very moment that he is ready to fulfill his promises, God breaks them. Romans 8, we have a climax of confidence. In Romans 9, we find a crisis of credibility. And the dilemma is underscored in verse 6 when Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. Here Paul uses the, the language of failure in the notion of ending in nothingness, ekpipto, to fall away into nothingness, to be unreliable. The question is, has the word of God failed? Indeed, underlying that question, can God be trusted. When we come to the opening verses in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, we actually find Paul beginning in the most extraordinary of places. Paul writes here as a pastor, a man that is deeply, deeply troubled, in great angst over the reality of the rejection of those that share his blood in the face of the glories and splendors of Christ. Many of you, when you leave Westminster Theological Seminary, are going to go into pastoral ministry. And one of the great joys of pastoral ministry is entering into the lives of people, where you experience their joys, their sorrows, their ebbs and flows, the vicissitudes of life. But something will happen. After you've been serving in pastoral ministry for some years, you will discover a fresh new library of which you knew nothing. It will be a library in your mind of the biographies of people that have been entrusted to your care. Some of those volumes are filled with the greatest of joys. What greater joy is it than to preach the gospel, to lead people to the gospel of grace by word and sacrament, and to see them respond in faith and obedience 
there is no greater joy. But also on that shelf in the mind of a pastor are the volumes, the biographies of sorrows, people who hear the gospel and reject it. Many who seem to indeed even run hard after doctrinal error because they want to. Others who propel themselves downward into the most convoluted and despicable moral failures. But there's a third set of volumes on the shelf of the pastor's mind. These volumes are those that create the greatest degree of pain. These are the stories of those who actually are part of the community of faith. Those that perhaps for generations have worshipped together with God's people. They've heard the word all of their lives. They've partaken of the sacrament all of their lives. And they say no. And they turn their backs on God. Reminds me of an encounter once many years ago. Visiting a young man in prison. He looked me square in the eye. A young man that had grown up in a Christian home. He looked me square in the eye and he said, I know what God wants. And I know what I want. And I'm going to do what I want. The volumes in the mind of a pastor, of those lives that have had the full exposure to the faithful covenant blessings of God and have said no. Those volumes bear the bookshelf in the mind with such weight that it propels itself downward into our hearts and the burden sometimes can be overwhelming. Here we find the Apostle Paul with tremendous angst and vexation over the rejection of Jesus Christ by those in Israel who had been the blessed recipients of God's faithfulness for generation after generation. Paul grieves over the tyranny of blindness the agnosticism and skepticism indeed foundationally the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where they misconstrued the gospel as a rejection of the Jewish faith. And with sorrow, Paul in verses 4 and following demonstrates that his fellow Israelites had missed the whole point of the blessings. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached and understood was a gospel that fortifies trust in God. It does not in any way jeopardize it. But the question is, how is that true? Well, we don't have time to explore each of these concepts in verses 4 and 5 at great length, but look with me first of all in verse 4. Let's look there again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, 
and the promises. Here, Paul, with six short terms, describes the variegated work of God in history. The variety of ways in which God has expressed his blessing and favor on his people. And Paul uses language that conveys his, his scope of vision is the entire scope of redemptive history as he considers what God has done for the old covenant people. I think it best, actually, as we look at these six terms, to see them as Thomas Schreiner and some others do, as essentially a symmetry of three couplets. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he is combining adoption with the giving of the law. He is combining the glory with the worship. He is combining the covenants with the promises. Let's talk about those just briefly. First of all, when we think of the, uh, the corporate adoption of Israel in the Old Covenants, most of you are familiar with the language of Hosea 11, Out of Egypt have I called my son. You see, God called his people son. And with that typological function for Israel, they recognized or Paul is explaining that there is a tremendous, precious relationship that they share with God as his chosen son. But with that adoptive privilege comes adoptive responsibility. You see, an adopted son is to be an obedient son. And when combined with the adoption is the giving of the law. Sonly privilege comes with a sanctifying calling. Paul then speaks of the glory and the worship. Oh, if we could trace this morning the wonderful, glorious presence of God with his old covenant people. In the pillar of cloud and of fire, his presence in the holy of holies, God dwelling with his people. This amazing privilege of theophany, the appearance of God with his people. And because of that presence, because of that imminence of God with his people, it intensifies the calling to faithful worship. And God had given his people the resources and instructions needed to be faithful worshipers. Paul then speaks of the covenants and the promises. Don't miss the point here that the word covenant is plural. Here Paul is again exploring the, the scope of the entire old covenant history that is filled with telescopic expansion of the covenants through Abraham, through Moses, through David. Paul is thinking about the entirety of the history of the covenants of God's promises to his people. These things that are looking forward. In summary, in verse 4, what Paul is demonstrating is the vast scope and the profound depth of the variegated blessing and work of God with his old covenant people in history. 
And it is emphatic in both verses 4 and 5 that to Israel these blessings belong. Israel is the owner of them. And therefore it is incumbent upon Israel to set their hearts in trust on the God of that blessing. But how is it then that God has shown himself to be faithful? How do these things come together for Israel as they examine those old covenant blessings? What is the solidarity of these things, especially as it relates to the gospel preached to the Gentiles? What Paul does in verse 5 After showing the variegated work of God in history, he then in verse 5 shows the permeating and unifying presence of God in history. Having in the verse 4 shown the litany of blessings that belongs to Israel, he then in verse 5 demonstrates that the patriarchs belong to Israel. Paul is implementing here an escalating argument that the blessings, the patriarchs, find their very reason for existence as they looked forward to and then understand that organically woven into all of these promises and blessings is the presence of God ultimately in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, Blessed forever. Amen. You see, the organic nature of these covenant blessings that God has given his people, they unite, they culminate in Jesus Christ. As Paul introduces in the book of Romans that it is this Jesus who as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, became the Son of God. Risen Son of God with power. It is this theological, spiritual, organic, genetic connection that Paul is demonstrating to Israel the scope and glory of those blessings given them in the Old Covenant realized in full in Jesus Christ. What Paul recognizes is that his brethren, his Jewish brethren, had become guilty of a biogenetic interpretation of God's blessings, when instead they should, they must have an understanding that it is a Christocentric, Christogenetic unity that dominates the blessings that God has given his people. How does that so? Well, think about the adoption and the giving of the law. This Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the messianic son who became the resurrected son, is the one who fully obeyed the law. He was the exhaustively obedient son. Paul speaks of the glory and the worship. Oh, think about the presence of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in human flesh. As John puts it, having tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. 
It is this glorious presence, this glorious Son, Jesus Christ, that calls us to worship in spirit and in truth. A worship that centers on Him. The covenants and the promises. I remind you just very quickly here of the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says, As sure as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Why? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus Christ is that golden thread of continuous presence of God that all those old covenant blessings anticipate and point to. So much so that Paul is arguing with his Jewish brethren that they do not understand their history if they do not see it through the lenses of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel for Jew and Gentile. All those variegated blessings of God find their raison d'etre. They find their reason for existence. Their very genetic interwoven reality is the presence of Jesus Christ. Israel, Paul says, the old covenant blessings that belong to you point you to Jesus Christ. To miss Christ, Paul says, is to miss the blessings. To miss Christ is indeed even to miss God himself. Look at the end of verse 5. The Christ who is God forever most blessed. Amen. You see, to miss Christ is to miss God himself. Most of us have at some point or another in our lives, been around a Christmas tree with a one-year-old child, sees that box wrapped in shiny red paper, and the child, when it is his or her turn to open the box, begins to look at the box and just looks. With a little encouragement from mom or dad or another relative, the child begins to pull the paper off the box. The paper is pulled off the box, and the child goes with the paper and totally ignores the contents of the box. Israel was guilty of being so consumed with the wrappings and trappings they missed what was at the core of those blessings, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God over all, blessed forever. What is the basis then of Paul's confidence that the God who had done such a variety of work over the history of his people, the God who organically brings those blessings to their fruition in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son made incarnate, 
What is the basis for his confidence? Well, look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of, Abra- of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Where does Paul start us? He points us to the reliability of God's word. It is not as though, it may appear as though God's word has failed, but it is not as though. Paul is pointing to the authority of God's word. No doubt Paul has in mind that well-known passage in Isaiah where God declares that his word will not return empty. God is faithful. His word is reliable. And yet how quickly, how quickly we even today, as we seek to discern our own circumstances, as we evaluate our own context and the suffering that we endure, we begin to wonder, God, can you really be trusted? And Paul doesn't point to his experience. He doesn't point to his Damascus Road event. He points to the reliability of God's word to properly interpret those old covenant blessings centered on Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it abundantly clear here that it is impossible to denigrate the word of God without denigrating God himself. God's word is reliable because it is God's word. It rests its claims on his reliability as God. Now, I could spend this morning a far longer time talking about verses 6 through 8 and the nature of God's explanation of his covenant faithfulness. But as we close this morning, I want to turn us in a slightly different direction. I want us to consider just for a few minutes here the very method of the Apostle Paul. What do we learn about Paul's method of assessing the Old Testament? What do we learn about Paul's approach to authority? There is, when you're doing rigorous theological study like you are doing here or are embarking upon here at Westminster, a risk. There are many risks, but one of them is that you will begin to rely upon your own scholarly abilities. And you will begin to trust in the scholarship of others for your conclusions. One of the ways in which this has happened quite recently is that there is a a round criticism 
of making the first Adam and last Adam so paradigmatic in our thinking, as Paul does in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. And the argument goes like this, that by so emphasizing the first Adam and the last Adam, or the first son and the last son, somehow we thereby eclipse the significance of Israel in redemptive history. Somehow by emphasizing the first son and the resurrected son and making that paradigmatic for our entire understanding of redemptive history, that we eclipse the centrality of Jesus, I'm sorry, of of Israel's sonship. Is that a valid criticism? I would suggest to you that that is a valid criticism only if we accept the model of Israel's first century blindness as worthy of emulation. You see, the typological function of Israel, its historico-genetic connection with Jesus Christ, that function of anticipation that Israel has, doesn't obscure or marginalize the function of Israel at all. In fact, it does quite the contrary. What it does demonstrate is the foundational role of Israel. You see, there would be no Jesus Christ redemptive historically if it had not been for Israel. And the very purpose of Israel's existence was not for her own existence, but to point us to the one who is God most blessed forever. Israel's historico-genetic significance, its redemptive historical significance, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. As we think then about Paul's method... It would be tempting to gloss over the end of verse 5 where he calls Christ God over all, blessed forever. Somehow dismissing it as merely an expression of praise, a brief exclamation. But I would suggest to you that that very doxological posture of the Apostle Paul is foundational for his work of theology. This is not merely a sidetrack for Paul, but that doxological commitment, that dependence upon God's all-sufficient ability to reveal himself clearly and without stuttering in his word, so that his word is wholly reliable, that this God is fully worthy of of worship. This reverential method is that which permeates the apostles' approach to God and his word. Paul is driving us to understand that we will mistake the wrappings and the trappings for the essence of redemptive history if we do not have ourselves in a position of worship as we approach the study of God's word. Indeed, the diversity of verse 4 The unity that is emphasized in verse 5, each of these is first and foremost a divine reality. 
Why then does Paul call us to trust in God's word? He does it because it is the word of God. And God's interpretation of redemptive history is to be relied upon. Throughout the New Testament, you will find that the writers of the New Testament consistently demonstrate this doxological tone as they reflect upon Old Covenant revelation. Why do they have such an epistemologically significant position which puts them on their face before God as they sit under his word? It is because this Word is the Word of God, and they love God, and to love God means to love His Word. I will never forget the conversation that I had about one and a half years ago with an alumnus of Westminster Theological Seminary, a 50 year alum. One of my most favorite things to do is to sit and listen to the alumni of 50 years ago to talk about their experiences at Westminster Theological Seminary. I was sitting across the table from this gentleman, and he looked in my eye, and his, again, his eyes began to well up with tears as he said, there, there's something you need to know about what I remember of my teaching and training at Westminster. He said, I remember not just the content of the lectures. He said, but what I remember is the way in which the faculty loved the Word of God. Students, you will be exposed to all sorts of methods of readings. You will be exposed to the wonderfully, critically important tools of textual criticism and other forms of biblical criticism. You will be exposed to all of the important and significant literature written in the ancient Near East. You will be exposed to ancient cosmologies. You will be exposed to Second Temple Judaistic studies. All of them have their place. But you must beware that there is a subtle temptation to begin to believe the assumptions and presuppositions of unbelief as it is sometimes exposed in those various disciplines. My fellow faculty, I ask you and I ask me, do we love the Word of God or do we love more what we can do with it? Are we more consumed with God's self-revelation in his word? Or are we more concerned and consumed with our hermeneutical, exegetical, theological, and apologetic prowess? We cannot make sense of God's word. We cannot make sense of God's world based on our own intellects, our own experiences, our collective wisdom, even the greatest of scholarship, unless all of those endeavors are put 
consciously and continually in submission to God's self-revelation in his word. The only way in which we will make sense of the variegated blessings of God, of the permeating presence of God in the old covenants, will be when we see it as God sees it. Any interpretation which dismisses the reality that God singularly has the absolute objective interpretation of his word and world. God is the only all-knowing party. It is only when we yield our hearts and our minds to him that we will begin to think his thoughts after him. You see, a love of God is evidenced not just in the study of his word, but a love of it. The God of the Old and New Testaments is a God who has served and protected his people. He is a God who can be fully trusted, and he is a God who has pointed us exhaustively to Jesus Christ as the center of his revelation. And God has served and protected his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Can God be trusted? It is not as though the word of God has failed. As we start this new year at Westminster Theological Seminary. I remind you that Dr. Machen in his first convocation address committed himself, committed the faculty at Westminster Theological Seminary to creating an environment for developing specialists in the Bible. But I remind you that the very words of Machen, indeed, the very tone of his language, is not that we become masters of the word, but the word becomes the master of us. And that we sit under it, not over it. We study the word of God, we know it, in order to know it, we study it so that we will love God. And we will love Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Can God be trusted? There is no other place to turn. Let us pray. Almighty God, how extraordinary it is that you have revealed yourself to us. We who are undeserving of anything other than your absolute wrath, you have poured out that wrath on your Son. And the very gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham, and with telescoping clarity through the covenants of the Old Testament, direct us, 
completely and entirely to fall down and worship you, to fall down and worship your Son, Jesus Christ, through your Spirit. And I pray for Westminster. I pray for the students this day as they begin either a first or another semester, that as they study your word, they would consciously, prayerfully, and continually submit themselves to you. May we as faculty do the same for your honor and glory. And may we be a seminary that collectively proclaims to the world that yes, yes, you, O oh God, can and must be trusted. In the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.